Some of you, I think, this is your first program. So who is this gentleman over here? His name is Professor David Ruderman. He is presently the Joseph Meyerhoff, Meyerhoff Professor of Modern Jewish History at the University of Pennsylvania. He was uh, formerly the Ella Daravoff Director of the Herbert D. Katz Center for Advanced Jewish Studies, Judaic Studies at the same university. Prior to going to University of Pennsylvania, where I'm told it was very cold and snowy um, in the last few days, he taught at the University of Maryland, which is also cold and snowy, and at Yale University, where Uri Elzer's son, Uri, what year is he? Oh, sophomore, where Ori Elzer's son is a sophomore at Yale. Um, he has published many books. We are actually working, uh, there's one particular book that we gave out to members uh, that has a lot of relevant information, so hopefully you got your copy. If not, you can see me later. And um, you may know of the professor from his great course uh, series. He has 24 lectures that are up, uh, that are available through the great teaching course, the great courses teaching company. In 2001, the National Foundation for Jewish Culture honored him with its Lifetime Achievement Award for his work in Jewish history. Uh, I would like to welcome Professor Ruderman up here and um, hope you're enjoying our crazy weather that we're having. Thank you all for coming out at lunch. And please turn off your phones. Thank you, Ari. Uh, so 45 minutes from starting right now, correct, Ari? Okay. So, uh, nice to see uh, even some of you last night uh, and uh, back again. And uh, those of you who heard me already uh, more or less are getting used to my style. And I'm getting in, this is lecture number five for me, which means I'm getting into my rhythm. You know, it took a while. Uh, Ari starts out slowly. I only have to give three the first week. Now they hit six, seven each week and so on. So I really have to work even harder. But I, I, I feel I'm up for it. Um, so let me tell you what I want to do in this series. Uh, it, it actually is this three-part series, although uh, we've added two additional debates. Um, um, and uh, one of them, uh, and they're part of the synagogue uh, talks, you'll have to look at your sheet to find where they are, uh, but one is about the founder of Reform Judaism versus the founder of, uh, of, of neo-orthodoxy, uh, uh, Abraham Geiger and Samson Raphael Hirsch, and another one uh, deals with uh, Mordechai Kaplan and Abraham Heschel. Uh, so uh, actually there are five altogether, although we are focusing in this group on three uh, that Ari mentioned. Um, why debates or disputations? What can we learn? Well, uh, I guess we could start by saying um, at times our people are a contentious group of people. Uh, certainly we enjoy the forensic way of learning, uh, the give and take the debate, uh, the argument, uh, and often out of that argument comes uh, a, a higher truth. Uh, I don't want to reduce these lectures to a kind of Hegelian uh, 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 dynamic of you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and so on, and then ultimately this debate, something will come out, l'shem shamayim for God's sake. Uh, but I think that might work to some extent in the lecture I'm gonna present now, uh, and also the one next week on the Baal Shem Tov and the Gaon. In other words, I do see ultimately not so much as a debate or polar opposites, but a coming together of two positions, which for me make up what Judaism is all about. Now, I don't know in all of the lectures that you guys have listened to over the years whether you've ever heard a lecture either on Halevi or Maimonides. Uh, was there one actually? It must have been, maybe, no? You don't, you don't remember? Okay, so this is all unique. Um, so what I want to do, first of all, is jump into the material really quickly. So if you have your package of texts. If you don't, we have extras back here. 
What I want to look at are two texts, and I think there was, uh, in my packet, it was, um, there were, it, it was uh, reproduced twice. Uh, but I'm looking for, um, it says Yehuda Levi, uh, Kuzari 4, The Names of God, page 118 and page 119. Do you have that one first? The back of the handout. Okay. So turn to that. Yehuda Levi and Maimonides are the pillars of, uh, of medieval Jewish thought. They are clearly extraordinarily important in understanding uh, Jewish self-understanding. Uh, I guess I use the word twice there, understanding. Um, they are uh, clearly different, but in many ways, as I say, they can be conjoined. I mean, it's really, uh, uh, but I want to introduce you to both because they have an enormous influence upon uh, Jewish thinking uh, for uh, right up until the present time. Uh, and what I want to argue ultimately is that both their understandings contribute to uh, how we think about ourselves, that they are still relevant. There is enormous literature on both. I can offer you all kinds of books if you want to read them. But let's jump in immediately with a text. And what I'm offering you is a really interesting comparison. Um, the Kuzari, uh, without actually talking about it directly uh, for the first five minutes, I'm going I'm to talk about it more directly, is a dialogue between a king who lives somewhere in Southeast Asia who is considering conversion and invites representatives of the, of the Jewish, the Christian, the Muslim community, and a philosopher to speak about uh, um, why he should convert to Judaism. The story of the Khazars is indeed a true story. We do have a royal family in the area of Caesarea between the Black and Caspian Sea who actually converted to a form of Judaism. We don't know exactly all the details here, but now there have been a number of scholars working on the kingdom of the Khazars, somewhere between the 9th and the 12th century until they were overrun by the Mongols. And the notion of a Jewish nation, of a Jewish king, is a super idea for lowly, uh, uh, inferior feeling kind of Jews. Um, Halevi took this and he made it into a fictional dialogue which he uses to understand his position on Judaism. So I'm going to say more about this, but let's just look at the text. So the Khazari is the, is the Khazar king, and the rabbi is the representative who eventually presents Judaism, and the rest of the entire book is about this dialogue. In other words, the other representatives go away, and we're left with the rabbi and the king talking about what is Judaism. Notice in number 16, on the bottom of page 118, I understand the difference between the God and the Lord. Here he's referring to the two names of God that appear in the Bible. You know, uh, there are more than two, th than two names, but the two primary names are uh, uh, Yahweh or Adonai uh, and Elohim. So that's, uh, so, so uh, he, he's trying to talk, and here one he calls the God of Abraham and the other he calls the God of Aristotle. We have confronted uh, Aristotle already in some of the texts that I've been looking at in other contexts. Uh, to the Lord we yearn, tasting and viewing him. To God we draw near through speculation. Okay. In other words, God being uh, Elohim. Now, look, look at number 17. What I'm interested in, the paragraph 17, page 119. Top of 119. Got it? 
So it's on the same page where I was reading from 16 and then goes to paragraph 17. Got it? All right. What I want you to look at, uh, check it, check it. Um, what I want you to look at is how Halevi portrays the patriarch Abraham. And then I'm going to look at the same, uh, another text, the Maimonides, how he portrays Abraham. Uh, as I've said already in my lectures, all history is autobiography. In other words, when we talk about the past, we often talk about ourselves. In this case, it works beautifully. All right, so here is Halevi on Abraham. Abraham, on the other hand, so I'm leaving out all of this context. I just simply want to focus on Abraham here. Bore his burden honestly in Ur Kashdim, in emigration, circumcision, removal of Ishmael, and the painful resolution to sacrifice Isaac. For he conceived the divine power by tasting, not by speculating. He had observed that no detail of his life escaped God, that he, rewar that, uh, um, that he rewarded him instantly for his piety and guided him along the best path, so that he moved forwards or backwards only according to God's will. How should he not despise his former speculations? The sages in Shabbat 156a, that's the Talmud, explain the verse, he brought Abraham forth abroad from Genesis 15, as meaning give up thy astrology. That means give up thy science. That is to say, he commanded him to leave off his speculative researches into the stars and other matters and devote himself to the service of him, um, uh, of him who he had tasted as it's written, taste and see that the Lord is good. All right, now, somebody turn off their phone here? Okay, you're working on it. Um, so, how does Halevi portray Abraham? In other words, what's the key word here? And what does that word mean to you? All right, I'm actually asking for a discussion now, yeah. for a second. Yeah. Uh, he bore his burden and? Taste, all right. In Hebrew, it's ta'amu or u et adonai. Ta'amu, taste. In other words, he is describing the experience of Abraham. He sacrificed Isaac. He did all of those things, of course. But he conceived the divine power not by speculating, not by using his mind, but by tasting. What kind of word is tasting? Tamu or ra'u. It says it's from the, from the Psalms. He didn't make this word up. Yes. Through his senses. Through his senses, right. Yeah, go on. Okay, all right, okay, good, uh, and you're agreeing with that. Um, it, to me also, tasting is a kind of an erotic word. Also, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's the sensory, it's, it's the tasting, it's the feeling, it's, it's, it's certainly non-cerebral, right? That the experience of God is nothing to do with using the mind. It is about experiencing, feeling, uh, tasting. Um, as a way of describing one's relationship with God. It's a very interesting way of doing so, and he chooses this verse uh, in the book of Psalms. Okay, now, without further ado, let's jump into Maimonides. So now I'm looking at, it's a text that says 73, Book One, Knowledge. And it starts out the first paragraph, after Abraham was weaned. First page of the handout, okay, now. 
just to introduce this very, very briefly, um, this is from the introduction to the Code of Maimonides, written by Maimonides, called the Mishneh Torah. I'm going to go back and, and explore that a little bit more with you in a second. The first book of the Code is called Sefer Hamada, the Book of Knowledge, which is a kind of philosophical introduction to a code of Jewish law. In other words, bringing together philosophy and knowledge. In this part, uh, in a section uh, on, called Abu Dazara, which deals with idolatry, uh, Maimonides explores the history of ancient idolatry and the emergence of the monotheistic faith of Judaism. Here he portrays Abraham as well. Okay, let's read that. After Abraham was weaned, you all got it? Again, uh, book, of knowledge, book one, knowledge 73 in the top. Got it? Okay, after Abraham was weaned, while still an infant, his mind began to reflect. By day and night he was thinking and wondering, how is it possible that this celestial sphere should continuously be guiding the world and have no one to guide it and cause it to turn around? For he cannot be that it turns around of itself. He had no teacher, no one to instruct him in aught. He was submerged in Ur of the Chaldees among silly idolaters. His father and mother and the entire population worshipped idols and he worshipped with them. But his mind was busily working and reflecting until he had attained the way of truth, apprehended the correct line of thought, and knew that there is one God, that he guides the celestial sphere and created everything, and that among all that exists there is no God beside him. He realized that men everywhere were in error and that the, what, what had occasioned their error was that they worshipped the stars and the images so the truth perished from their minds. Abraham was 40 years when he recognized the creator, etc., etc. Uh, you can read on by yourself. So what kind of characterization, who is Abraham for Maimonides as opposed to Halevi? Philosopher. I think tasting is passive and obedience in a way, and Maimonides' interpretation of Abraham is as a, a more active, self-thinking person. So when I read Halevi's section, it was almost as if he basically did what God expected him to do without questioning and just having faith that it was the right thing. And tasting, if somebody puts something in your mouth, you can taste it almost without your will being involved. You taste it. But in Maimonides' case, Abraham had to actively pursue something. He had to sit down and think about something and make a decision. So I think one is active, one is passive. Okay, I, it's an interesting uh, way of doing it. I'm not sure I, I, I think tasting is so passive, but uh, it's, a, it's interesting what you said. All right, let me just, just one or two more, because I'm never going to get through this if I don't stop you. Go on, yeah. Okay, Halevi is an experiential uh, approach. This is intellectual. Okay, that's, that's the most obvious. You, you tried to nuance it even more, and I appreciate that. Uh, but w one, one more comment, and the... And the Looking at the universe with awe, I'm not sure that that's, that that's analytical. He's in wonder. Ah, no, but I see. What I would like to emphasize, I mean, I'm sorry. I don't know if you have uh, children or grandchildren like this, but you know, 
Um, my daughter-in-law is like that. I mean, my, my three-year-old is already reading phonics and doing everything. She's preparing her for Harvard or Columbia, you know, as soon as she was born, you know, when, when she's in diapers. Uh, so, so here is Maimonides saying, Abraham, when he was an infant, he was, you can imagine him in diapers and he's already reflecting on the universe. Uh, that's the Abraham that Maimonides, of course, is talking about himself. Um, so clearly, I, uh, the difference is, uh, whether it's passive or active, I, 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 do, I, I think reflection, uh, whether it's, I think it's more than awe, I think it's calculating. Uh, if you go down farther here, he quotes from, um, uh, where is it, where is it, where is it? Um, he refers to uh, adopting astronomy and astrology and so on. Uh, in other words, and also taking the Midrash, you know, it's not in the book of Genesis as you know. But the story about Abraham destroying all the idols and then moving from Ur Kashtim, you know, uh, to, to found his monotheistic faith and so on, that's rabbinic. That's found in the rabbis. They, the, the biblical text doesn't tell us exactly what's going on. But the notion of being the first monotheist and conceiving this monotheistic idea on the basis of his speculation and reason is my monodian at the core. So I, I think these are beautiful texts if you juxtapose them together because you're getting two different perspectives on the same Abraham. One, a, a tasting Abraham and a, a cogitative uh, Abraham. All right, so that's th to begin with. Now what I want to do in um, each devoting about 10 or 12 minutes to, I want to sort of put the thinkers, uh, talk about them individually, and then bring them together at the end, and then sort of make my point. Um, and Ari, just give me a time check I started about 25 after, correct? So yeah. I'm going 15 minutes. That means I can go until a quarter after? Yeah. Okay, got it. All right. He's a tough taskmaster. I don't want to fool around with him. Okay. Um, Yudha Levi, 1085 to 1142, if you want dates. He is much older than Maimonides, so that when we speak about a disputation, it is really uh, not actual, uh, although these positions have shaped two distinct views of Jewish thought. But Halevi is really earlier. So he's not reacting to Maimonides, uh, but he is certainly reacting to the philosophy of his day that preceded Maimonides, which is also quite substantial. But Maimonides is really the culmination of the medieval philosophical tradition, as you will see. Halevi is most famous uh, for his poetry, and particularly uh, his poems, both religious and secular, uh, which make a very significant contribution to uh, Hebrew literature. He is well known for his Shirat Sion, the Odes of Zion, which are central in his own self-understanding of himself. In other words, the famous poem, uh, I am in the west, but my heart is in the east, clearly talking about Zion, talking about Jerusalem, and so on. Uh, and these poems have a, a, an incredible afterlife, particularly during the rise <coughs> of Zionism and the Jewish state, uh, because indeed Halevi was focusing on the centrality of land uh, as a part of Jewish consciousness, and particularly the land of Israel. His major philosophical work, as we've said, is called the Book of the Khazars. It was originally written as all of the Jewish philosophical works of the Middle Ages in Arabic, or more specifically Judeo-Arabic, which is an Arabic with Hebrew characters. Maimonides' work as well was written in Judeo-Arabic. Maimonides' e commentary on the Mishnah, which is a totally sacred text, was also written in Judeo-Arabic. Uh, so clearly this was the lingua franca of the day. Uh, the Kuzari was immediately translated, as well as Maimonides' works into Hebrew, and became known as the Sefer HaKuzari. 
Uh, and this book had, as I said, a seminal influence on Jewish thought. Uh, one of my own students, uh, Adam Scheer, uh, wrote his dissertation on the influence of Halevi on Jewish thought right up until the 20th century. Uh, and it's an incredible story, uh, how this book was used and reused and reinterpreted in all kinds of ways. The story, uh, of course, we mentioned the Khazar Kingdom, this imaginary kingdom. Jews were fascinated in the Middle Ages with this kingdom, the possibility that there was a Jewish king. One of the serious problems that Jews faced in terms of their own inferiority complex living in the Islamic and the Christian world of the Middle Ages was they were stateless. They had no land. They could not argue that wealth, riches, power was somehow associated with the truth of their religion. And clearly, they were battered upon by both Christians and Muslims in arguing that, look, we have power. We have wealth. Uh, we are serious, and you are not serious. You are simply a powerless, weak, uh, and therefore deficient religion. And thus, the idea of having a Jewish king in this country called Caesarea uh, would be a wonderful idea. Already in the 10th century, uh, we hear about letters emerging in Hebrew written by Chazda ibn Shaprut, uh, the, the Jewish courtier of the Umayyad Caliphate in Cordova. In other words, this was a Jewish presence in Spain, writing to Joseph, the king of the Khazars, to try to influence, uh, to try to connect with him to find out more about this remarkable Jewish kingdom. Uh, these letters, certainly Chazdai's letter is authentic, whether Joseph actually responded or whether someone created uh, a, a response for him uh, is unclear, uh, but these letters circulated and they were read and they were prized and therefore the theme of the Khazar kingdom was well known by Halevi's day. Halevi, as we said, brings together a whole group of representatives. So the, it begins this way, the king is having a nightmare. He wakes up in the middle of the night and he says, he hears an angel speak to him, and, and the angel says, uh, are you, uh, you are uh, worthy, your intentions are good, but your actions are bad. He wakes up with sweat, and he thereby calls his advisors and says, I gotta do something, why aren't my actions good? And therefore he calls all these representatives that I've mentioned, first the philosopher, and I'm, I don't have time to analyze the philosophical speech, by the way, there are plenty of English translations of the Book of the Khazars, you could read this for yourself. Uh, unlike Maimonides' philosophical work, which is very inaccessible, Halevi's work can be read uh, uh, you know, uh, quite easily uh, in, in English and, and appreciated. Um, the philosopher speaks, uh, it leaves the king cold. The, cold had a, the king had a dream, and therefore that existential, that subjective feeling, the tasting, in other words, that, that he needed something to speak to that feeling that he had in his heart, and the philosopher just left him cold. He turns to Christianity and he says, you know, I can understand this stuff, Trinity and, you know, God, Son, it, it's too irrational to me. I don't understand your mir miracles and so on. Remember, you're not going to get a fair objective hearing here. Obviously, this is being moved in the direction of, of Judaism. And the Muslim there too, the jihad, there's too much fighting and killing and so on. Uh, I, we can't uh, uh, accept you. So finally ends up uh, with a Jew. And I just want to read you the first few lines, which you don't have in your reading. I gave you another reading, uh, which deals with the notion of Israel as the heart of the nations, which is also a beautiful text. But I just want to read you uh, the beginning of when he meets the, uh, the Jew, the king. 
I now see that I shall have to ask the Jews, the remnants of the children of Israel. It appears that they are proof and evidence for all believers that God has given a law to man. He now calls one of the rabbis of Israel and asks about his creed. The rabbi replied. Notice this reply. That's the critical thing I'm reading here. In other words, here a Jew needs to explain his Jewish faith to a non-Jew. How would you do it? How does he do it? So here is his answer. We believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who led the children of Israel from Egypt with signs and miracles, who fed them in the desert, and having guided them through the sea and the Jordan, gave them the land of Canaan for possession. We believe in the God who sent Moses with his Torah and many thousands of prophets after him, exhorting the Jews to keep the Torah, promising high reward to the observant and severe punishment to the disobedient. We finally believe in all that it is said in the Torah, but this needs further explanation. And the king answers, originally I had not intended to ask the Jews at all, for I knew their narrow-mindedness and ignorance. Indeed, their ignominious position and their poverty have not left them a single good quality. Should you not rather have said, Jew, that you believe in a creator of the world, who rules and guides it, who created and sustains it, and similar such ideas? Are these not the arguments of all believers for the sake of which you pursue justice and truth? The rabbi answers, that which you talk about is religion based on speculation, the result of logical conclusions which hide many uh, fallacies. If you would question the philosophers, you would find that they do not agree on a single course of action or principle. Among their theories are some that could perhaps be perfectly proven, but there are others for which no proof exists. Uh, all right, so what do you think of that answer? particularly the beginning of the answer, we believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and ja ja Jacob, the uh, Moses, et cetera, et cetera. What kind of answer is that? A complete answer. It's a complete, to say that God is creator of the universe, it doesn't describe Judaism or being Jewish, Jewishness. So what is, so I'm, I'm looking for a key word here. You go on. The God of history. Ah, you got it. Right on. Um, Good group here. Um, a God of history, right. In other words, we learn about our faith through history, the unfolding of history, the covenantal history, which, which he's describing. The history of the Jewish people in relationship to its God, beginning with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, pursuing through Moses and beyond. In other words, not through speculation. Notice how philosophy, particularly ancient philosophy, which is now being revived in the Middle Ages, Aristotle and Plato, are so anti-historical. Uh, in other words, they're the exact opposite. History is in flux. It doesn't give us any sense of permanence, of eternality. That's what philosophy seeks in terms of eternal ideas about the universe. We as Jews, says Halevi, learn about God not through the eternality of ideas, not through their permanence, but through the unfolding of a dialogue between God and history between beginning with Abraham and extending all the way up to the present. So clearly, that's the first idea. And that's what ultimately, even though the king starts out by, by saying nasty things about the Jews, ultimately, as you will see after he goes page after page, he's going to come around to the rabbi's position. So clearly, locating God not in rational speculation, but in the experience of the Jewish people through history, their ongoing experience of the divine, is the very nature of the Jewish faith. The second idea of Halevi is a much more controversial idea. There is something to be chosen when you are powerless because the course of our history 
is different from the course of other nations. So don't judge us and the way we are treated in the world by the standards of other nations. According to Halevi, following Aristotle, there are four aspects of life. Uh, animal, uh, mineral, uh, vegetable, animal, human being, right? That's Aristotle. The four essences, he calls them, or ha'inyan, ha'inyanin. The fifth essence, however, is another category which Halevi adds. And this is the category of navi, of prophet. Who is a prophet? A Jew. Can a person be converted to becoming a Jew and be a prophet? No. Prophets can only be born biologically as Jews. And number two, they can only activate their sense of being prophets by living in the land of Israel. Uh, that's Halevi. Now, does that sound a bit racist? It is. But remember, Spain was the place where racial anti-Semitism began. Remember the Inquisition and the racial anti, the laws of limpieza de sangre? Some of you know Spanish, right? Did I say it right? Don't you know Spanish? You're from Southern California. You don't know Spanish? Limpieza de sangre. Yeah, the laws of the purity of blood. That begins in Spain, all right? That's part of the stories of the Muranos and Conversos, which we'll talk about in another lecture still. Um, so Halevi lives in a world which sees things in terms of racial categories. Uh, I can't excuse it. And the idea of biological Jew or, or Jewish blood coursing the veins is something that I can't, of course, relate to. But nevertheless, it was part of his cultural world. But for him, being a prophet, and here's the critical thing, being a prophet, having that remarkable experience of tasting the world in its fullest can only be activated in the land of Israel. In this sense, Halevi is a counter-cultural uh, figure. For most Jews living in Spain at this time, Maimonides being the embodiment of this, Spain is the greatest place in the world. There is culture, there is the courtier class. I haven't really talked about medieval Spain, but Jews rose up the ranks, Jews were involved in a larger culture, they created a poetry, a literature, they were part and parcel of the larger culture. For them, Spain was indeed the embodiment of the best of diaspora life. And here Alevi is coming along and saying, no, there's something wrong. You know, at the end of the Kuzari, the rabbi says, okay, we've had a great talk. You can convert now to Judaism, but I'm leaving you. Uh, have any of you uh, remember uh, Porgy and Bess? So you're at the end, you know, Porgy on his little uh, cart says, he, I'm gone, I can't sing it. Uh, my way to the promise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's what the Kuzari does, right? Yeah, that's good. I'm really happy, happy to have someone that, you know, when I do it to, to a younger audience, they don't, Porgy and Bess, what's that? They don't know. Porgy and Bess, I grew up, but that was my, my mother's, uh, she introduced me to American musical theater. Anyway, um, so, so you're right. So that the Kuzari says, I'm on my way, and he goes off to the land of Israel. So in other words, even his fictional character makes Aliyah. I mean, that's really what's important here. So clearly, let's summarize this. So for him, a Jew fulfills his life by fulfilling the divine commandments, especially the commandment of Yishuv Haaretz, of living in the land of Israel. And here's the critical thing, to f going back to the notion whether it's passive or active or not, the tasting of God. To be, have a religious experience, one does not reflect, one does not think, one does not cogitate, one experiences. But even the word experience, as you will see when I talk about Martin Buber later on uh, in, in this month, experience is a word which is, is about defining some kind of I-it relationship.
But what Buber was referring to, the I thou, is what Halevi is speaking about, that we speak, we don't speak about God, we speak to God. We enter a dialogue, a relationship with God. It is something that we cannot describe in words, or as, or as uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel calls it, the ineffable. We can't describe that experience. The word ineffable, there's a word for you for this week. Uh, ineffable, uh, beyond words, it can't be described. It is that experience of tasting which is the essence of faith and the essence of being a Jew, and not speculation. When you look at the idea of God, you are essentially looking at something which remotely resembles God but is not God himself. How do we find God? Through mitzvot, through commandments, through being a Jew, through living through history. That is Halevi. So Halevi is the quintessential um, insider. He's and the distinction between the philosophical ideal uh, and uh, the religious experience, of course, has a long, long legacy within Jewish history. Uh, I could mention to you the Kabbalists. I could mention to you the Maharal of Prague in the 16th. And I will be speaking about Prague uh, as well. Uh, and of course, I, I referred already to Martin Buber and particularly Franz Rosenzweig. So the influence on Halevi, for example, on Franz Rosenzweig uh, in the 20th century is enormous. So we have here uh, a particular theme which is played out uh, among Jewish thinkers, and Halevi becomes the quintessential uh, example of this approach. All right, now it's time to turn to Maimonides. Um, we said a quarter after, right? Maimonides. 1135 to 1204. Maimonides' story uh, is a very interesting one. Halevi, as, as I said, left, or I didn't say, left for Israel at the end of his life. Not only his fictional character, but he actually left. The legend is that he arrived in the land of Israel and kissed the ground and some uh, Arab horseman went after him and or stepped on him and killed him and so on. But that's, not a, that's just a myth. Uh, he probably got as far as Egypt, although now there is evidence, uh, there are new uh, archives that have come out that suggest that he almost arrived in Israel, but he was certainly on the way like a porgy. Um, um, so clearly for him, uh, his life uh, began in a very pe difficult period of time. Uh, I did not describe the 11th century in Spain, but it was already a period where the great caliphate of Cordova had broken down. Uh, the invasion of several Berber tribes. It was an extremely difficult and chaotic period uh, for Spanish Jewry, and Halevi le uh, leaves. Now, uh, Maimonides is also, is later, but nevertheless, Maimonides' time is also uh, very turbulent. Um, when I took in 1992 100 rabbis to, uh, on Spain, on a tour of Spain, uh, we came to Cordova, and there I gave a Maimonides lecture. It was really exciting, right next to a statue of Maimonides in the, in the town square. Uh, in fact, it's really a cool place, Cordova, these days. There's one hotel. You've got to go there just to see this. One hotel is called Maimonides Hotel, and across the street is Halevi Hotel. So, I mean, you really can get it uh, to visualize it even better. Um, he was there until 13, and then he was forced, because of, of the, uh, the invasion of these Berber tribes, to leave Spain. He went across North Africa, and he ends up uh, as the great physician uh, uh, in Egypt, uh, in Cairo, in Fustat, which is a suburb of Egypt. Uh, and there he remains for the rest of his life. Uh, and he was succeeded by his son, Abraham Maimonides, uh, who was also a very famous philosopher uh, and also a mystic as well. Um, 
He earned his living as a very distinguished physician. We have already 13 volumes of his medical writings to show you that indeed that was his primary preoccupation. How he did all the rest on the side is, is quite unbelievable. His major contributions are uh, two halachic works. One he wrote at the age of 20 called The Commentary on the Mishnah, which was written originally in Judeo-Arabic. Uh, and then the Mishnah, of course, the Code of Jewish Law that was edited by Judah the Prince in the year 200 CE. Um, but his great work was this extraordinary code, reorganizing halachic literature in such a way to create a code by subjects called the Mishneh Torah. All right, I should, uh, I got this here. Right? Yeah. All right, so uh, I should write some of this down, but let me just start to write. The problem with my writing is that you can't read it, but uh, that, that's uh, Mishneh Torah. So that is his code of Jewish law, and I mentioned to you we had just read a, a section of the introduction uh, called Sefer Hamadah. Um, but his most important work in terms of the larger community of people is the guide for the perplexed, uh, called in Hebrew Morem Nevuchim, the guide for the perplexed, which is a philosophical work, which analyzes Judaism philosophically. The work was so incredibly important. Uh, it was originally written in Arabic, as we said, translated into Hebrew, but soon translated in, into Latin uh, and in a variety of other languages. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, for example, read and quoted from him. Uh, he had an impact, therefore, on medieval thought, on early modern thought. The Moren, the Vuchim, the God of Perplex, along with the Mishneh Torah, are still read by Jews today. Uh, we have a, an English version of that. Uh, and if I had time to waste, I would tell you a, uh, a dirty story about it, but I, I'm not. If you want to ask me about it later, I'm not using my time for that right now. Um, but there is a wonderful English version of it uh, translated by uh, a very famous uh, modern philosopher. I guess I'll give away my uh, name, Shlomo Penis. Um, and uh, there's a funny story about this, but, I'm, I'm not, uh, uh, but it's an incredible translation of the University of Chicago if you want to see the whole guide to perplexed. Uh, in any case, uh, I usually like to tell jokes, but I don't have the time. Um, in modern historiography, Maimonides has been treated in numerous studies. Maimonides is an industry unto itself. I mean, there are so many Maimonides books, uh, you, couldn't, uh, you could go on and on. I mentioned one in the notes that I sent Ari, uh, a Maimonides reader edited by Isidore Tversky, who is a very famous professor at Harvard. Uh, there are two recent uh, monographs uh, among the many, many uh, that have come out, one by Moshe Halbartal of the Hebrew University and another by Sarah Strumza, also of the Hebrew University. And they present two more portraits of Maimonides, this towering figure of intellectual life in the Middle Ages. Um, already uh, years ago, uh, Leo Strauss, the very famous Jewish philosopher of the 20th century, wrote an essay on how to read the Guide to Perplexed in which he argued there were essentially two Maimonides. There was Maimonides, the law code uh, shaper, who was the man of the halakha, of Jewish law, and there was the philosopher. And basically, to read Maimonides was to read essentially esoterically. That is, to read the code that was written to those philosophical few who had their, uh, his own view, and then he read, wrote, also wrote for the masses. So there, there is the, the, the exoteric Maimonides and the esoteric Maimonides. 
Uh, and somehow the, these two Maimonides are only read by those who are reading them. In other words, if you really know, you'll see how subversive Maimonides is as a philosopher, but he hides that because he's writing also for the public. A whole series of people have argued that there's only one Maimonides, however. Isidore Tversky wrote a 700-page introduction to the Mishneh Torah, which argues uh, that indeed there is only one Maimonides. Uh, Marvin Fox, uh, uh, oh, a whole series of others. I won't mention a lot of names here, but essentially the idea that the person who wrote the law code is also the same, and that somehow we need to integrate and speak about one person, not about a secret Maimonides versus a public Maimonides. But I mentioned that this scholarship is very contentious and very and out there uh, and makes for a very interesting uh, a world. That, you know, there's a whole journal called Maimonidean Studies. I mean, just on Maimonides. I mean, this is really, as I say, a cottage industry. Um, given the vastness of this writing, I can't obviously do justice to it. And in fact, uh, I, I need only to spend about seven or eight minutes on this part. So what I want to do is talk about one, I'm going to read one text and then I'm going to talk about two more. Uh, the, the second you have in your packet, the others you can read on your own, but the one text that I did not give you, I, I want to simply uh, explore with you for a second. Um, and you'll forgive me that I don't have the text in front of you, but I, it's only a few lines, so it's not that hard to read. This is from the beginning of the Mishneh Torah. So I'm going to teach Maimonides by illustration of three texts. One I will actually read, the other two I will talk about. Um, here is the text. Maimonides begins by citing uh, the Talmud, where it says, the time allotted for study for a Jew, this is in uh, Hilchot Talmud Torah, the beginning of the, the Sefer HaMadah. So this is in the law code part, not in the philosophical work. A time should be divided into three parts. This is tra tra traditional uh, uh, this is what the Talmud says. One third of your time should be spent in reading the Bible, the Tanakh, Torah, T Tanakh. The second, Mishnah, the code of Jewish law written around 200 CE. And the, the third part, Talmud. In other words, the Gemara, which was written roughly between the third and the sixth century. In other words, the commentary on the Mishnah itself. So that's the way you should divide up the world. Here is Maimonides taking that same text from the Talmud, which everybody knows, and rewriting it. Now, you could either ignore it, or it, you'll see how subversive it is. Uh, it is a reflection, in my mind, of where Maimonides is at. So just, just let me show you how he rereads that same text that I described to you. The time allotted to study should be divided into three parts. A third should be devoted to the written law. Now, written law, of course, is Tanakh, Bible, okay? No problem there. A third to the oral law, Torah Sheba'al Peh. Now, the oral law might include all of rabbinic literature, which includes the Mishnah and the Talmud, all right? In other words, he's now not dividing the Mishnah and Talmud. He's including them in one second category, right? And the last third should be spent in reflection deducing conclusions from premises, developing implications of statements, comparing dicta, studying, believe it or not, the hermeneutical principles by which the Torah is interpreted. See, I'm not the first to use that word. Uh, till uh, all of you didn't hear, I used that word, was used in another lecture and made, uh, I made it a big deal. Hermeneutical interpretive, something like that. Till one knows the essence of these principles 
and how to deduce what is uh, transmitted, what is forbidden from what one has learned traditionally. This is termed Talmud. Now I could read more of this, but that's enough. Um, what's going on here? What did he do? You get it? He just rewrote that whole text. And what is he, what, what's, what's the bottom line here? He's saying study, study what I'm talking about. More than that, you go on. Okay, essentially what he did was to condense the three categories into two. The first, you study Bible. The second, you study rabbinic literature. And now Mishnah and Talmud are together. And now you have a third category that's open. Before it was, one was Mishnah and then, and then, and then Talmud. He has redefined the word Talmud to make it what? In one word. Philosophy. That word reflection, reflecting on the text, thinking about them, putting them in categories, I mean, uh, deducing conclusions from premises, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you can ignore this as being, you know, it's, it's revolutionary, though. It really is. It's reformulating what Judaism is. And it shows you that when someone speaks to you and says, this is Judaism, and it's always like that, it's not, this is nonsense. Maimonides has rewritten the whole nature of Jewish culture in that one verse, and he, take, he took a Talmudic passage and he reworked it. So the, highest, so the highest ideal, therefore, of the Jewish scholar is to arrive at number three, which is a kind of a philosophical analysis of what Judaism is. That's the way I would read this text. All right, now that's text number one. Text number two, and I'm, I'm here I'm, I'm gonna do it, uh, I'm gonna talk about it. You have it in your, in your uh, text packet, I'm not gonna read it, but. Look at, this is from the Guide to the Perplexed, Book 3, uh, Chapter 51. Just see where it is. You're not going to read it with me now. But I want you, your homework is to read that text. Okay? Now. Uh, all right, 117 of Bonnie. You got it. Okay. Now that text is an incredible text. It is the, what is called the palace metaphor. It describes the following, and here I'm going to really do it very loosely. It's probably more uh, specific than I'm going to give it. But basically, there is a king sitting in a castle, and he's sitting in an inner chamber. And then there's an external chamber. And then there, there are, is, is, is the, the wall around the palace. And then there's a moat around the, uh, around the wall. Uh, and then there's, so there are people across from on the other side of the moat and so on. He's going to put all of his people in various categories uh, way outside, all the way inside. So if you follow this, the people that are on the outside, of course, are pagans, non-Jews, unbelievers, don't have a monotheistic God. Then there are the monotheists. Now we're getting across the wall. We get inside the wall, and we're now talking about Jews who observe all the mitzvot. Isn't that enough? Isn't that the goal? Wouldn't that be the goal of Halevi? But they're not in the inner chamber. Guess who are in the inner chamber with God directly, speaking God directly? Philosophers. Philosophers, exactly. So what I want to suggest is that text, in the, the, the first text that we read, is a, is, is, is a parallels this text. In other words, one is from the code, the other one is from the guide. They are basically doing the same thing. They are prioritizing. And here is the, the larger context in which this is emerging. To be a Jew, to be a serious Jew, you need to use your mind. You, you, you need to reflect. 
Remember, in diapers you need to reflect. You need to start to think about God. It is not enough for you to perform the mitzvot, to go through the ritual experience of being in shul every Saturday. If you don't study, if you don't utilize your mind, philosophy is the ultimate mitzvah. Philosophizing, not in the sense of modern philosophy perhaps, but trying to understand rationally to cogitate the meaning of religion and God through the use of your mind, okay? And of course, where is this coming from? It's coming from his, his understanding of Aristotelian philosophy, which he is attempting to merge with Judaism. Now, one more illustrative text, and then let me sort of bring this all to an end, because I have five minutes left. Amazed I can do this so quickly. I, I, uh, and usually, I, I usually take a lot more time. Uh, okay. Um, in the second book of the guide, there is a long, long discussion about creation. Uh, I love to teach this text. I can't do it, but I can describe it to you just in a minute or two. Why is creation an issue for medieval philosophers? It's not just creation. It's to use the Latin term creatio ex nihilo, or creation out of nothing. Nothing In Hebrew, yesh me'ayin. The idea is when God created the world, he created out of nothing. Nothing was there. In other words, it goes against our logic. For Aristotle and Plato, essentially the, the, the primary mover of the universe created out of something. What, the, 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 the term that's used in Aristotle and Plato is eulic matter, a kind of unshaped matter in which God imposed the form on that matter and then thus, in other words, the idea is illogical that um, we could create out of nothing. Everything is created. The, the, the table you're sitting at, the chairs you're sitting at, the, the rug, uh, the, the, the microphone, everything is created out of something else. So therefore, it's illogical to assume that God can create out of nothing. But given the uniqueness of the Jewish faith and the Christian faith and the Muslim faith, it is absolutely critical that this idea be, in other words, God can have no limitations upon his power. And therefore, it's absolutely critical that he be understood uh, in, in this sense of being all powerful, all good, and so on. Maimonides solves the problem by telling us a story uh, in this long several chapters in which he talks about, uh, in other words, he can't prove or disprove this issue. Uh, he wants to be philosophical. He wants to find some kind of merger between philosophy and Judaism. So what does he do? He suggested the story of a young man growing up on an island where he didn't see anybody. And finally, he is discovered on the island and people confront him. Uh, and he starts asking questions about life. And he said, how did I come into being? And they said, well, you, you were in a, your mother's womb for nine months, et cetera, et cetera. Impossible. I can't believe that could happen. From the basis of my own experience, I have no idea. That's impossible, what you're telling me. And essentially, the argument Maimonides is arguing is not that one position is right or wrong. It is that we are not in a position, given our finite understanding of the world, <laughs> to understand something that is beyond us. And therefore, since you can prove a question like creation out of nothing, we can believe in our divine uh, understanding of it. And so in other words, he doesn't simply argue the, that everything can be rational. He finds a way in which he tries to talk about the limits of reason and the ability of, therefore, human beings to have faith. Maimonides is the quintessential rationalist, and his impact upon Jewish thought is enormous. When Maimonides died in 1204, uh, he confronted in the 13th century, or the Jewish world confronted, an enormous controversy over his writings, particularly the notion of using rational arguments to understand Jewish sacred texts. 
in Provence, uh, in, in Northern Europe, uh, and throughout the Mediterranean world. There were a series of controversies even when Maimonides' books were burned. However, Maimonides was too important to be dislodged. His Mishneh Torah became a foundation for Jewish law. And the great Rambam, as he was called, simply could, needed to be dealt with. So Jews picked up his book, republished it in the 16th century, the 17th century, and is still, of course, read today. Let me bring this together by now going back to my summary of the two. Maimonides and Alevi. I hope in, in this very quick snapshot of each, you got a sense of the importance of these thinkers and their resonance for us. I would call Halevi, and go back, remember, to the image that we began with, the image of Abraham's Hale, uh, of Halevi's Abraham uh, and Maimonides' Abraham. Essentially, uh, the ex there are two ways of knowing God, through experience and history, or through reflection and cognition. Clearly, both of them are important. But I would argue that there is a different, another difference between the two, which is, is in, in only partial, but nevertheless, the emphasis is there. I would see my uh, Halevi as primarily the great insider, the person who finds meaning and satisfaction by turning with, within the resources of being a Jew, the spiritual resources, of finding in prayer, in mitzvot, uh, in aliyah, the means by which one activates one's deep understanding and appreciation of Judaism. Maimonides, on the other hand, is the outsider. When I spoke about Jewish studies in my opening remarks, uh, I was speaking as a Maimonidean. The notion that Judaism remains the same is a fiction. Judaism is shaped by not only its traditions, but its surroundings, and by the dialogue between the outside world and the internal world of Judaism. Maimonides reshaped a definition of Judaism to give it a philosophical understanding. He lived in a world where Aristotle and Aristotelian philosophy were supreme, and there was a need to somehow reconcile Judaism, to speak to, about Judaism in the language of its own day. Therefore, turning to the outside to reinvigorate the inside was the approach that Maimonides took and which Maimonideans take in every generation. So putting these two people side by side, are they exact opposites? Is this the great debate? I'm not sure. If you read uh, the, the book I mentioned earlier by Adam Scheer, Adam argues that the notion that these two are opposites is a 20th century idea that basically Jews read Halevi and Rambam together, uh, that they saw themselves, they were on the same bookshelf. They were part and parcel of the same thing. Uh, nevertheless, two approaches. Uh, Halevi never actually became totally anti-philosophical. He actually wrote in Arabic in the first place, so he's speaking the philosophical language. He talks about astronomy and he talks about the sciences in the Kuzari. So it, it's not a, a total anti-philosophical position uh, nor a total, uh, on Maimonides' part, a total lack of appreciation of, 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 of the sensual, of the experiential in Judaism as well. Uh, so while they are different, and while they take us in two different directions, and both of them have their uh, extraordinary, I mean, I spoke about how Levy's influence in the 19th, 20th century, Maimonides' influence is equally supreme. Uh, take Hermann Cohn, for example. Take Mordechai Kaplan. These are Maimonideans in every respect, and we'll talk about how they are uh, if you talk about modern Jewish thought. 
But what is clear, it seems to me, that gamzu vigamzu, you know that expression in Hebrew, both this and that. Uh, in other words, to go back to the notion of a dialectical faith. Uh, we need a little Halevi, we need a little Rambam. Uh, we need them both. In other words, we need to experience, we need to taste, and we also need to reflect. Uh, and that, that these two elements can exist side by side without any dogmatic formulation that one is right and one is wrong. To me, that's the nature of Judaism. So it's 17 after, two minutes. Uh, Ari gave me leeway. Okay. Uh, that was quick, and I feel very inadequate because I didn't do a good enough job, but I tried my best uh, in the time that I had. But hopefully, if you haven't studied these thinkers before, you will. Uh, we have a few minutes for questions, correct, Ari? Well, one or two questions. All right. How much of an astronomer was Maimonides? How much did he delve into these? Uh, okay. Um, he, uh, he, uh, on Saturday, I actually read a Maimonidean text where I talked, it's, it's a remarkable text in which he says, astronomy is changing all the time and the rabbis can't be trusted in knowing their astronomy. We take them seriously for the halakha, but we don't take them. Uh, he did study uh, astronomy and we have a few astronomical texts, particularly texts which were studied by traditional Jews called Hilchota Chodesh, having to do with determining when the new moon is. So, so in terms of the calendar, there was a need to know certain astronomy. But unlike every other medieval thinker, Maimonides took a very strong position against astrology. Every other medieval thinker, Halevi, Ibn Ezra, and so on, all of them were in favor of astrology in the Middle Ages. Maimonides wrote a treatise against astrology, which he felt the stars could not determine the universe, and this took away from the notion of monotheism. So yes, astronomy, but no, astrology. Uh, but clearly, Maimonides became a, a kind of hexier, a kind of justification for Jews who studied uh, the sciences. But clearly, his most important scientific work was in medicine. Uh, and we have actually uh, scholars who have translated now and studied, as I said, 13 volumes. We have a whole book on Maimonides on asthma. If you have asthma, maybe you should read it. Uh, but you, you see what kind of a, 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 a physician he was. Okay, who should be the second one? Uh, tell me, Ari, over here. Okay. Um, well, there's a rabbi from Israel who says Maimonides is, you're stuck with Maimonides. If you want to really be Jewish nowadays, you should free yourself from Maimonides. You know, I just, I don't know. You should be more reflective, but in a different way. Or you should make it more to your own needs. So he's obviously more of a Halabian. Um, well, uh, that's interesting that he says that. Um, I thought you were going to refer to uh, the misuse of Maimonides. Uh, one of the things that I did not talk about in this presentation was Maimonides on the Messiah, um, on, the, uh, on the Messianic era. Um, he clearly was against supernaturalism, against uh, uh, anthropomorphism, against uh, the notion that the messianic era will be different from our era. He took a very strong rational position on this. But he's been interpreted by Gush Munim and by uh, those who are the messianic, uh, particularly the, the ideological group uh, in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, who are... Um, have used Maimonides in such a way to argue that indeed uh, we can create a messianic state and so on. 
Uh, and several philosophers have written against their position because they, 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 they misinterpret Maimonides. But you were speaking about something else. Um, I, I don't know the rabbi or his position. Uh, clearly, as I said, there are two poles here, and one can go in either direction. Uh, for me, uh, I, I, I acknowledge I'm a Maimonidean uh, in the sense that I really believe that, as I said earlier, uh, the university enhances our understanding of what it means to be Jewish. That by interacting with the outside world, we ask questions, we think about issues, we formulate our, the notion of our identity in new and exciting ways. And that is indeed, that's why we were born. That's why we were created to, to rethink, to create chidushim, to create new formulations of knowledge and so on. So Maimonides, if he were living today, I think would argue that uh, essentially we have to need to go beyond Aristotle. We need to go beyond the medieval scholastic formulations that he formulated Judaism. But he actually gave us an opening. In other words, he gave us the possibility of thinking about the world, uh, whatever world we are inheriting or we are living through, uh, and re rethinking Judaism in the context of those values and ideals that come from the outside world. Not necessarily accepting them blindly, but confronting them talking about them, deliberating on them, and thinking how Judaism can be expressed and made accessible and meaningful in our own times. So uh, I would love to meet your rabbi, because I would argue with him. Uh, and that would be, you know, part could be one of the debates, we're at, one of the, the three debates in this series. Uh, but uh, in his absence, I will, I will just say that even the most orthodox Jews, however they read Maimonides, they read him. One more example of this. Um, Abraham Abu Lafia was one of the great mystics of the 13th century. Just to show you that Jews don't discard, they just reinterpret. Uh, Abu Lafia wrote a commentary on the guide to the complex of Maimonides. He was a mystic, a, a real mystic. I really believed he could, he could, uh, his soul could connect with God. Uh, but he reinterpreted Maimonides in a Kabbalistic way. I remember when I was teaching my first year. Uh, at the University of Maryland. I had a class of 150 students, um, and I had finished a lecture of Maimonides. Uh, and the young kid gets up, uh, you could tell he was just growing, trying to grow a little beard, and he had a big yarmulke on. Uh, he had recently found the faith, so to speak. Uh, and he said, no, my Chabad rabbi said to me, you're wrong. Uh, when Maimonides got old, he recanted, uh, and the Baal Shem Tov, uh, the, the, uh, he became a chassid. Uh, I said, what? Uh, Balshenko lived in the 18th century and he's in the 12th century. Uh, but, that make it, but what he was referring to was how the mystics didn't simply put Maimonides in excommunication. They reinterpreted him in a mystical framework, as Abu Lafi had done. So that's really the beauty of the tradition. It reinterprets so that everybody has a sort of a place in this tradition. In other words, that's the notion of tolerance, perhaps, within our, our cultural realm. Should I call on her or not? It's up to you. You can answer it in a quick way. Does that authority to reinterpret end at some point in history, or we still have that authority to reinterpret today? Well, I don't, I don't speak for any authority here. I'm just a, 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 a common professor. Um, I certainly believe that in my own life, that, that, that Judaism is all about interpretation. Uh, and I think, you know, historically, that's the key word in formulating what Judaism is. Uh, that we interpret texts, that we confront texts, and we rethink them in terms of our own category. So again, I'm ending in a very Maimonidean way, but nevertheless, I appreciate the notion, whether it's passive or active, I'm not, I, I haven't made a decision on that yet, 
uh, of, of tasting. I think we have to do some tasting as well. I think everything can simply be in the mind. We also have to experience something, and I will talk about that more when I talk about Martin Buber later on in the, in the month. So Thank I think you. we're finished.